This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Misa. And we're going to talk about Mission of Gravity by Hal Clement. First published in Astounding, serialized between April and July 1953, and then as a book in 1954. I've never read any Hal Clement before this. I've read a lot about him. I've seen him interviewed. And this book is exactly what I expected. (laughs) (laughs) Paul, you've read him before, right? I, I, I had read this a long while ago. I had forgotten most of the details, but they started coming back as... As this, as as the journey across the planet progress. Oh yeah, oh yeah. This is where they this is where they meet the flyers. And oh yeah, he, now now we're going to have the problems trying to get up the up up the up the slope. And it, 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 all, it all started coming back. And uh, I started remembering all the connections this have and how how Niven kind of borrowed some of this for his a little bit for known space and talked about it. And th- mm-hmm. I got thinking about. How the Mescalonites would be awesome co co explorers with humanity of the galaxy because there are plenty of planets Mescalonites can live on that we can't. Mm-hmm. They, they make an excellent team with humans, mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. Clement, I mean, designed it that way purposefully. Uh, Mice, have you read any Hal Clement before? No, no Hal Clement, nothing this heavy at all. Uh. <laughs> okay. Um, my arm, my arms are still sore. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um. So yeah, is, is it a hard book to read? Are you a hard SF person? Have you read any Larry Nevin? Me, no, no, and it it was, um, it it was I, I it was interesting and 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 it, it was I, I guess it was impressive, but it, it's not something that I would do it on, on purpose because. <laughs> Because it slowed down. It slowed down the story. All of the signs. I kept having to stop. And I was like counting. I was doing math. I was like, wait a second. Okay, so that means that if, if it takes them this many days, that that means that an Earth day is two months. And like, I just had to keep stopping mm-hmm. and counting and thinking. And that's just too hard. I hear you. But that's, um, that's the... Uh... That's the game. That's the game. <laughs> that's, the ga- that's the game. And I mean, you listen to the afterward, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Clement specifically talks about the game specifically and how he wanted to work things out and what he could and couldn't put into the novel. So for him, the novels did start as a intellectual exercise. I think I think that the, the, the name of the essay he had written was Whirly Gig World, where he mm-hmm. lays it all out of like this. This okay. This is how the gravity is going to work. This is how the day's got to work. This is. These are the conditions, and so I have to create a life form situation that can that can hold up to this. And so this is what I came up with, and voila! And so he he basically started with the world and came up with the characters and situation from that world, which is kind of different than anything done these days. I mean, we're in a mm-hmm. we're in a much more character driven era of science fiction where you have a character and from the character you derive the world here clement decided okay i'm going to create this i'm going to create this world and then i'm going to create characters for it Mm -hmm. and then a story will emerge and 
So we did. Yeah. So uh, I I think it's just hard SF has sort of gone out of style completely. I guess that it's astounding was the magazine that sort of made it popular. Um, and it's still around. Is analog analog still around? Right. Analog still around. Uh, analog these days is the um, torchbearer for hard SF. Although you can, if you read analog, you can see stories that aren't quite as hard as they used to be that are slipping in just because the the field has shifted. As you as you said, hard SF is very much out of favor these days. I think it I think it always was kind of out of favor except for the fact that you know people were pushing it. I don't and, think so. I I I I, th- well, I I think especially early on hard SF was what people thought of as SF was SSF and I mean it wasn't until the post Campbell era and the new wave that other modes of science fiction and really started to dominate. Yeah, so uh, uh, did you guys watch that episode of Prisoners of Gravity I tweeted at you? I was I, so I, fun. Loved it. Yeah, it's good, right? Did you see all three parts? Cause it's, I did, yes. Okay, good. Um, sadly, I still can't... Sadly, I'm having video problems on my computer, so now... Oh, oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Um, my Frankenstein, well, yeah, is dying. I don't know if you have you seen the show Prisoners of Gravity. I've before? heard of it, but I've never actually seen it. So why don't okay. you t- why don't you to talk about it for a bit? Okay, well I, I highly recommend it to you, Paul, when your computer's better or your my new my, my new computer coming in a couple weeks. Good, good. Um, uh, it's a, a good name for the sh- for the show. Um, yeah. Given the book is a Mission of Gravity, the show's Prisoners of Gravity. Um, and that that particular episode, I I don't remember what the topic was. <laughs> well, but it has an interview with Hal Clement, um, and he talks about the world. There's a lot of Larry Niven on there as well. Um, there's a lot of other hard SF writers, Benford and such. Um, but yeah, I would say I would I want to argue Paul's point a little bit, but I I I want to. Have you had you you'd seen Prisoners of Gravity before, right, my son? No, I had not, and it's a TVO oh. thing. I should have. I don't. Yeah, know well, looking. Okay, so it's never gonna. It sounds like it's impossible for it to ever be, you know, have a legit release or another broadcast on TV. But uh, the lady who uploaded those, some of those videos might be mine because <laughs> I recorded it off of the local <laughs> college wow. network, um, and sent sent her my videotapes. She's in somewhere in Toronto. Um, and she, she uploaded them and they're just the, it's the most amazing show. It's actually, you know, one of the reasons, uh, you're talking to me uh-huh. is because I was inspired by that show to, you know, do more website stuff. And then that turned to a podcast and I met my friends, mice and Paul. So, wow. Thanks wow. of gravity. Indeed. Um, and it's, it's, it's a fun show. It's a funny show. It's just a very clever show and it. It's, it's, um, it's much more like a YouTube show than anything other you would see on television at that time. Mm-hmm. It's a whole bunch of clips uh, edited together with a silly premise and a ridiculous set, right? I was um, so surprised they could get such high-name, serious-minded people to talk to him. Yeah. Considering what he was wearing and what he was doing. Well, it's actually pretty – it's a pretty clever trick. Yeah. But, they, but the, well, the way – the only guy who I think in that video who 
maybe it's not even in that one. Only guy who actually was talking to uh, Commander Rick, a.k.a. Rick Green, um, and also Enrico Gruen. <laughs> the, um, uh, the premise of the show, Paul, is that um, a Torontoite who really likes science fiction just got fed up with all the stupid things that were happening on Earth, kind of like you would feel now. <laughs> Back in the 90s, he felt this way, you know. Uh, stupid arguments in the Middle East and ridiculous politics. And he says, uh, I'm fed up. And he straps a rocket ship to the top of his <laughs> car and, and goes into outer space with all his comics and, and books and a few video cameras and stuff. And he crashes into a, sp- a satellite up there and now is making pirate broadcasts down to Earth, um, trying to make Earth more sane. Um, and you can you can fax him, you can email him later on. Um but the the premise is is he's up in his satellite communicating down to Earth and he can control television channels. Uh-huh. So <laughs> beyond that, uh, yeah, I, what, think, what, I think the episode that we watched was um, why are all why are all aliens in humanoid form? And and there was right. a lot of discussion about if that was the way it should be, and right. that's how we got to Hal Clement. Right, and of course Hal Clement says no. Right, look at my story here. Um, so the the looking down on earth um when he's looking at the camera um uh, or when he's looking at his television set it's actually very whoever i actually know who designed but i can't remember at this point what their name is um the person who recorded this show i think his name is daniel richler actually um Mm -hmm. what he did was they they would go to science fiction conventions and just record the same questions with whoever was there and then later they would edit it together. But the angle at which the guys are looking off the cameras towards the interviewer. Yeah. Right. And then Rick is looking at the, the television screen from the opposite and appropriate angle. So it looks like they're talking to each other in real time, but those questions are rehearsed Uh, or the, the questions Rick is saying to them are the questions that were said at the time. So it's a very clever way of editing it cool. together. It makes it look like like it's just a instead of just being a bunch of talking heads, um, it has a zany you know uh, guy who's trying to change the world through science fiction as its as its lead. It's it's very very good show. Wow. Um, I'm gonna have to look this up. Yeah, definitely. And and it's really nice to be able to see like when I I've only been to one science fiction convention, but I recognized everybody. <laughs> because I watched this show. So I, I was like, holy shit, that's Kim Stanley Robinson on the elevator or the escalator, right? And I run up to him and say, hey, I really loved your book, uh, right? <laughs> and he's like, who's this weird guy? <laughs> um, but, you know, holy crap, that's Larry Niven falling asleep at this panel. <laughs> because you can see what they look like. And they're not just, uh, you know, books you've read. They're now superstars on television. Uh, getting their their due, which is something you know they don't get. I mean, barely Harlan Ellison's been on regular television. Isaac Asimov maybe twice, right? Mm-hmm. When they land on the moon, they give Heinlein a, a minute. But uh, I learned about most of my f- current favorite authors uh, when they were you know babies on that show. Garth Ennis is a baby on that show, and. Neil Gaiman so young when you see him on there. Oh wow! So, is there is most of it uploaded? 
I don't know if most is the right word for it because I think there's still a lot of missing episodes, but there's a, a good a substantial amount. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that was back uploaded in 2007. So I think there, that's why it's, they had a limit on how much you could upload mm-hmm. for a, um, uh, 10 minutes, I think was the maximum until they unrestricted it a few years ago. In any case, um, I, I just think it's appropriate to talk a, a bit about this show because it is about escaping uh, the mundane reality of this world and thinking of those people down below. Uh, I, I, maybe I go in too deep on this, but Rick is the humans, right? Looking down at the earth. Uh, and these foolish creatures who don't understand things. <laughs> and that's what the premise of this book is, too, right? I mean, it's not it's not foolish as much as, uh, you know, there's these people down on the planet that don't understand their world properly. Right, right, because, we, oh, right, because yeah. the novel goes through a whole bit of uh, the uh, mescalinites not understanding the shape of the world. They think, it, they think it's a, a, a bowl, basically. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they have, they have to be told no, no, your world is just a elongated sphere, and that makes no sense. That's not what we see, and it, it, it it's it's almost got a uh, almost like a fake uh, Columbus, Christopher Columbus sort of thing. Like oh yeah, the, the, well I think that's that's uh, it's in, it's what I was thinking about the whole time was this is um, the Spanish the conquistadors landing on the shores, right? Yeah. This, it, this it, oh, it, it was probably the episode called First Contact. That was pro- yes, well, it was called First Contact. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. yeah. So First Contact uh, stories are very much important to certain kinds of science fiction, and they, they predate um, uh, analog and astounding, but are really powerfully... I don't know, juiced up in Astounding. Um, yeah, but speaking of First Contact and all of that, and, and Columbus and all of this, didn't, did either of you strike you, like, what about the Prime Directive? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. What Prime <laughs> Directive? This is uh, 1953. Yeah. That's right, but so they gave they gave Barlinan a 2,000-year crash course in science, and his his purpose in doing this was so that he could be a pirate who would never have to pay tolls again and be in charge of a whole planet. Like what have they done? They, they, they have, they have, they have severely in, in the effort. And it looks like just to get to this probe and look at it. Yeah. I, I, I got to wonder now that I've listened to this again, I didn't think about this when I read it back in the day. So basically the humans go through all of this just and and change Mesclan society and the world just so that the Mesclanites can get to the space probe and take some pictures for the humans. Leave the bloody probe alone. You've you've completely changed the cultural evolution of this planet for a stupid space probe. I mean, granted it, I mean, granted in the result, we get a cool story about them crossing the world and these, these Mesclanites finding out much more things that, they never knew about their world and the humans never do. Like, for example, the, the whole sequence with the gliders is like, holy crap, there are mescalinites who can fly. The humans are surprised, but can explain what they're doing. The mescalinite, the Bartlin and his crew are really surprised, but not so surprised because, well, the, well, these weird humans do it. We can do it too. Well, look, they're doing it. It's like, huh? 
Yeah. But, you know, the, the, but yeah, gi- giving all this technology and all this knowledge and trying to uh, uplift the uh, Musconite civilization for uh, just for the sake of a, of a space probe. It, 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 the, as far as the Prime Directive, Mike said, this kind of reminds me of um, Elsprig de Camp's um, novels set on uh, the planet Krishna. Have you read them, Jesse? I know I've mentioned them on no. the show before, so I'll mention them again. Basically, Planet Krishna is a, uh, it's a series of novels by Elspreg de Camp. Uh, humans are going through the galaxy. They met some other races on and off planets, and they meet this primitive race on this planet, and they basically do have a prime directive. You're not allowed to give the aliens technology. You're not allowed to try to change their society too much. If you go out with the aliens, you have to disguise yourself as an alien and not give them ideas and they're even people even hypnotized so they can't like give the secrets of gunpowder and other stuff to the aliens but things do kind of leak out the aliens notice things and try to copy and and do uh do their own versions of stuff they eventually get kinds of guns but with local propellants and it's a fascinating working out of the prime track and these novels were started to be written before star trek but it's kind of like that whole prime directive uh mentality you were thinking about my says like how do we keep the alien how do we keep from screwing up alien society too much and yet interact with them it's a it's a problem the clement doesn't even think of back then here it's like what the heck we'll just give them stuff so we can get to our space probe and did you take it one step further because these these uh masculinites were very intelligent and adapt and like they were highly adept at languages they they came up with ideas for how to overcome problems oftentimes faster than the humans above them, like, you know, use the pincers to get meat and use the, the, the tank as a sledge. So what happens when these tiny little creatures use this technology against the rest of us and become pirates of the galaxy? Sounds good. <laughs> Mescalonites Mes- Mes- uh, wind up getting, yeah, wind up uh, colonizing the galaxy. Well, that that's one of the beautiful things, if you think about it. The Mescalonites will start colonizing the galaxy, but... The worlds they'll want are not the worlds we'll want. I mean, mm-hmm. it, I mean if you think, if you think about our soul, if you, if you think about our solar system for a moment, if the Mexicans came, they wouldn't be interested in Earth. It's too hot. Mm-hmm. They'll look, they they'll, melt. They'd they couldn't melt. even live there. Right. right. They, they, they'd colonize all the all the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune. That's they just take yeah. the, they just move right in. They're, it's perfect for them. <laughs> well, what's the moon uh, of? Uh, so one of the things that's if if you do read that Whirligig World um, essay, which I I I really dig that it didn't come out after the book. It came out while the book was still going, right? Yeah. Like it's the yeah. third installment. And he says, here's I'm tipping my hand. This is the kind of book you're reading. Um, uh, even before you finish reading this novel, um, I give you my permission. I, I think this is really cool. I give you my permission to do anything you want with this setting, right? Yeah, that was yeah, cool. It, it, yeah, it's like he, he made a public domain to like you yeah, can use exactly. the, and as, as long as you don't screw it up. No, it's a, it's said. Creative Commons license because yeah. he says you have to make it a hard SF. Right. right? Yeah. So, yeah it's you a, can't make it a, a planetary romance. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, that, there, you know, that that would break my brain. Although I want to talk a, a bit more about that that aspect of it as a planetary romance, but um, th- uh, thinking about how how the world that he's built 
in that whirly gig world essay and the and the novel itself there's um is it methane lakes yeah or methane seas right yeah. we have a we have that on a uh what's the moon Triton, right? Triton's got methane seas, and it's got uh, rain, like everything that he described. No, Triton, not Triton, Titan. Titan? Titan. 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 Okay. Yeah, Titan yeah, 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 yeah Titan. Of, uh, Saturn. Saturn? Okay. Saturn, yeah, I was mixing my moons up. Yeah, Triton yeah, is Neptune. It's got, a, it's got an atmosphere, it's got rain, it's got seas or lakes, anyways. It is um, is is made for mescalonites to come and come Exactly. Hot. And what's so cool is that this... Uh, if you if you dig a little deep, you know, around the internet about this, uh, there's like the TV tropes thing and the Wikipedia entry and good the extensive Goodreads reviews. Um, this is the first uh, novel set on a world uh, on a planet outside the solar system that actually probably is a planet. Uh, they you know exoplanet discovery is sort of very popular now, right? Every uh, they sort of stop even reporting it <laughs> yeah. because there's thousands of them, right? There's no point anymore. Um, every once in a while, they say, this one's exactly your size, only except it's twice as big, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they, they're always coming up with new exoplanets now. But uh, the article that uh, that got Hal Clement writing this uh, mentioned in, in Whirly Gig World came out uh, during World War II. And he just says, okay, there's there's something there orbiting this star that is uh, not bright enough to be seen, but having gravitational influence, what's that world like? And then that this whole book is an exercise in making uh, answering that question. And in doing so, he does all the things that it, it's entirely possible, given the size of the universe, the number of galaxies, the number of stars in each of these galaxies, that there is such a world as this. Uh-huh. And even on top of that, there's even it's a possibility that there's there's uh, the the problems for the life forms on that planet, if such exists, which is, seems almost probable if you do the numbers right, mm-hmm. um, would be solved in this very similar ways. Right, the ships won't have one big keel because the as you know, uh, the the keel would break as the it passes through different parts of the over the waves, and the gravity would break it. Right, so they have rafts. It's he's very good at plotting out and clever, you know, cleverly thinking through the whole world. This is what you know. So many people talk about world building when they're writing their novels. <laughs> this is actually how it's actually done because the story here is pretty crappy, right? Just like just like in Ringworld, a great novel. The story's pretty crappy. Well, I, I wouldn't say crappy. It's just very. It's just simple. they go and visit this world, and then they leave the world. They, right? they, they, they travel the across. They travel across the world. They have they dangers. Travel. They right. they they get to the end. I wouldn't say it's crappy. It's just very basic. It's, yeah. it's not what Clement's interested in. All he's he's interested in showing off his world and mm-hmm. all the implications of that world. The, the, the plot, the plot of that journey across the world is beside the point. It's just Indeed. there. It's just yeah. there, so you can see the flyers, you can see the methane lakes, you can see how how people deal with trying to climb a slope in 500 g's gravity and not kill yourself. That's all he's really interested in, and he, and, and he does it rather well. I mean, this is this is not the this is not the book I'd want to read if I wanted to be inspired to write a story. This is the book I want to read if I want to inspired to do some world buildings like 
okay, this he goes through this step by step. He, he there's lots of info dumping. I mean, I mean, this is novels infamous for the whole idea of info dumping, trying to explain scientific concepts. But and maybe it's a little over heavy handed. But he 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 just works it out in such meticulous detail. I just have to go, damn man, you, oh, you yeah, can't. <laughs> You'd take your hat off, but you wouldn't wear a hat because you're afraid of things above your head. Exactly. <laughs> hey. I mean, one of the things he doesn't explain, and because man, it's the 50s and biology wasn't as a uh, advanced as science back then, he doesn't explain why intelligence would develop on this world. I mean, general theories nowadays suggest that intelligence develops for a reason, for an ecological, environmental reason. I can't see why the Mescalonites needed to develop intelligence and what what advantage that gave them over the local... There's not a lot of local... There's, I mean, there's not predators. Yeah. It's so like, the ecosystem is very uh, minimal in this story, right? Right. We don't... You know, well, we see a forest and I'm like, that's the first forest? What, what else does the landscape look like, right? Mm-hmm. So it is... It's uh, rather barren and um, we don't... We don't what we do get of the biology is pretty low on the spectrum, but that's because, you know, this is a short novel right. and it's doing a very specific sort of set of physics uh, sort of vignettes so that you can see all the interesting things that result when you think about this idea. And I love, I want to read the, 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 the first, uh, it's not actually the first paragraph, but the first few paragraphs, some of the first few paragraphs of that worldly gig world, because this is, so much against what people are reading science fiction for now. Nobody reads for mm-hmm. science fiction for now like this. They they read, you know, the what's the the fifth season, right? It has science in it and it has implications from that. But I don't think that that novel or any of the majority of the contemporary novels think I've got this interesting science problem. And let's see what we can do with that, right? This interesting th- science idea, and let's see what we can do with that. Instead, I think they start with the opposite premises. Wouldn't it be cool if, right? And then they try and f- sort of force it in the other way. Mm-hmm. So everything that happens in in Hal Clement's Mission of Gravity is sort of a way of showing all the implications. In, uh, you know, uh, I'll just I'll just read the first few paragraphs, and then you'll see. Sure. Uh, the fun and the material for this article lies in the treating the whole thing as a game. I've been playing this game since I was a child, so the rules must be quite simple. They are for the reader of a science fiction story. They they consist of finding as many possible uh, of the author's statements or implications which conflict with the facts as science currently understands them. For the author, the rule is to make as few such slip-ups as he possibly can. Certain exceptions are made by both sides, of course. For example, it is commonly considered fair to ignore certain of Dr. Einstein's theories if the story background requires interstellar travel. Sometimes a passing reference is made to travel through hyperspace, in which the light can travel faster or distances are shorter. But in essence, we ignore the speed of light rule since we can, so far, see no way around it. The author assumes that the problem, or perhaps others equally beyond our present ability to solve, be answered and goes ahead from there. In such a case, of course, fair play demands that all such matters be mentioned as early as possible in the story so that the reader has a chance to let his imagination grow into the new background. And this is where I think it starts to get really important. 
I always feel cheated when the problem which has been developed in a story is solved by the discovery in the last chapter of anti-gravity time travel or a method of reviving the dead. Such, such things must be at least near full development and known to the reader long enough in advance to give him a chance to foresee the ending. I have always assumed, perhaps wrongly, that others felt as I do. I try to write accordingly. So, and then he starts saying how he does that in Mission of Gravity, right? And he's actually explaining, like, he's giving diagrams. Mm -hmm. This whole essay is like, okay, um, I hope you're enjoying this novel, uh, but just so we are all on the same page, this is a game and we're playing, right? Um, I hope you enjoy, I hope you enjoy the game I'm playing with you. And I don't think that that's what most SF is, is or, ever really has been um like so paul something you said uh you said i i disagree astounding right so i think we get a false picture of science fiction um because of how important astounding was mm -hmm. um what i think uh campbell did was really inflate uh a certain kind of hard sf at the time when like if you think of of the conventions that came out of the 40s, 50s, 60s, right? Those people going there, the the winners, Astounding was the premier magazine. There's tons of other SF that is not in Astounding, right? Uh, Horace Gold's um, Galaxy. Yeah, they'd win awards, but that's still not the the gold standard of SF. And we have this idea in our head, the gold standard is something like what you see in Mission of Gravity. But this is a game. This is game fiction in the same way that Sherlock Holmes fiction is game fiction, right? We are playing the game with the author. The author shouldn't cheat us, and if they do, then that's not a good book. Uh, I think that was even mentioned. Did you see that, Mesa, in that interview uh, with Hal Clement? He said something to that effect. He says, "It's not you're a bad writer if you." Yeah. And it wasn't like a bad pro stylist. It was like, you're a bad writer if you cheat the reader. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that anybody thinks that anymore. <laughs> I think that that's a very narrow, uh, sort of astounding, um, hard SF kind of thing. And uh, almost nobody plays this game. Larry Niven plays it. Maybe Jerry Purnell. I've never read a Jerry Purnell book that way. Right. Even what I love so much about Larry Niven, even though everybody gives him abuse because he's so sexist and racist, which he is, um, <laughs> is that even when he does a fantasy novel, it's hard. Right? <laughs> like he he says, OK, uh, here's here's a um, here's here's a magic system. And this is the cost for the magic system. And you see that in a book like um, which I haven't read, but I hear a lot about uh, the fifth season, right? Yep. Paul, you've read that one. I have. Um, there's a cost to using the quote unquote magic system, right? Yep. Um, but I don't think, I don't think it's rigorous in the same way from what I've read about it and what I've heard about it. It doesn't sound like it's as rigorous as I'm starting with this crazy premise and I'm going to see what shakes out from there. And yeah, I don't, whether the characters are great or not is sort of a byproduct. Like, Bar Lennon is almost indistinguishable from from the Don whatever his name is Don Dragmer Dra Don Dragmer yeah I'm I, I'm a bit curious about these names as well and uh, who Charles uh, up on 
on the spacecraft, or the human spacecraft, right? They're all sort of scientist Hal Clement types, right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but and well, well, there's not a girl in the book. I don't even know. There's not one girl in this. Book. There's not one girl in the book, and there's not. I don't even know if if these centipedes reproduce by fission or what. Yeah, yeah. Clement wasn't interested in. Yeah, he's not interested at all. No. Yeah, and it never even comes up as like a oh, what what about your sex lives, right? Uh, did he like, did he even say how long they lived or anything? I think it says they live longer than humans. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, it is mentioned. They live much longer and much longer. And the other thing is, you throw them in the ocean, and the, the <laughs> I had a feeling there's like a million sailors at the bottom of the sea, <laughs> frozen there, waiting to be scooped back up <laughs> yeah. and put back to work, but. Okay, so so I want to answer some of the things you said. Mm-hmm. Okay, so as far as as far as hard as f, I think that Clement is at an extreme of hard as f. I mean, he he's he's playing with the, as they say, the the net up, as it were. I think there are degrees of hard as f, and I think as a general, the the window of science fiction was back in the time much more shifted towards hard as f. I won't. I I, I agree with you. Yeah, not everybody was. The majority of SF wasn't wasn't so as uh, uncompromising as Mission of Gravity. Let's go for the extreme, but I think the general trend was in that direction. And now, over time, it's shifted in other in other ways. Um, as far as as far as Bartlin, um, he, he he came across to me, and I get I get a weakness of the book is the the very human seeming. He came across to me as more like a New England Yankee trader rather than a, yep, ra- yep. Ra- rather than a scientist. Like, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm for the exploration for the deal, and I'm going I'm going to take risks because I get the deal. And he also mentions he's explicitly an adventurous type. So I was thinking you know, like 19th century New England uh, sailors going and trying to build trade routes and make money and stuff. That I mean, that's not a very alien sort of creature, but it's a very uh, relatable sort of. Uh, mindset and that's the mindset they got out of Bartland. Yeah, but mm-hmm. Lackland even descri- describes them. He says in spite of their weird chemistry and forms, they're amazingly human. <laughs> Calls yeah. that himself. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, but this wasn't the era of sophisticated uh alien aliens quite yet. And mm-hmm. I mean I I mean it's it's more sophisticated in some ways because they're not humanoid, but Except for mentions of the pinchers and stuff, they might as well be, they might as well be uh, Star Trek aliens as far as but, how yeah. they act. That's that's the interesting thing. He changed their body type completely, but he still made them people. Well, the, he he made them Hal Clements. I mean, see the thing is, if if you if you think about how like if you if if you are looking at the affect. If you're watching that episode of Prisoners of Gravity, you're looking at the affect of Larry Niven and and Hal Clement and a lot of these authors. They're talking about incredibly um, exciting things, right? Like, wow! It, it's, uh, you know, he's he, he's he's invented a world. He's done all this really inviting thing, and he's like very emotionally flat, right? <laughs> it's an oblate. It's a no blade emotional range, right? It's, so. it's, it's sort of like being invited. You've been invited to this party, but you're in the like the outer edges. You're not in the inner circle where everybody's you know speaking. They really know what they're talking about, and it, and it's fast and zippy and so exciting. And you're back there going, what? <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, it, it, nothing in here is like um, hyper dramatic. The uh, the best, like the 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 one line of characterization that I thought was like, oh, this is this is the peak of characterization of this novel oh, is when is when Bar Lennon says something like, um, I couldn't quite nip it. <laughs> what he means is I couldn't quite grasp the concept. Right? <laughs> I was like, oh, there it is. That's the the peak of uh, of this novel sort of characterization because yeah, they they are just they're just quick-witted students, <laughs> you know, who are learning from Hal Clement, the teacher, who's up in orbit above them. And uh, what what's missing that, you know, of the negative things I could say about this book, which I don't think there are a lot, it's, you know, I like this book. It's, it's very, it's a fun game, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, the negative things is, you know, when I'm thinking about uh, Cortez or whoever, you know, coming to uh, the Americas and dealing with the natives is that the natives typically have a hell of a lot more shit going on of their own that they are, are interrupted by. And like, how can I exploit this sort of uh, this weird guy who's just showed up uh, to fight my enemies? <laughs> you know, like there are people are usually too wrapped up in their own problems um, when someone else comes into their lives to, to, to act in as sort of a, uh, a smooth a fashion as you see in this very peaceful version of a first contact story. The reason we, we, we want to see that, uh, you know, non-interference measure that the Federation is always trying to implement in its episodes of Star Trek um, <laughs> is because in real life, um, when people get into first contact with each other, horrible things happen, right? Um, usually. But um, that's only part of the story. One of the really interesting things, right, is that it's, it doesn't have to be that way. It depends on who's coming. So if, if you had Hal Clement coming to this planet um, and the alien down on the planet says, um, you know, you, Paul's saying, you abandon the probe, right? Um, and he tries to make the gravity, the, the importance, the mission, the gravity of this mission more important by, you know, making the probe cost $2 billion, which even in adjusted money would not be that much. Yeah. Right? yeah he, they said it was, yeah. he, there was no money that could touch it. Right. But also in addition, uh, uh, to the physical manufacturing, it's the data that was important mm -hmm. to them. Right. Yeah. And, um, we, do spend a lot of money on science and I think that's important. So if you had a scientist whose goal is not to, you know, savagely, uh, my strip mine this planet, um, I, it seems kind of hyper arrogant to, to, to do the opposite and say, let's minimize contact and not as Bar Lennon assumes, um, or at least at one point assumes, um, that they're hiding information. Um, because that is also, uh, kind of way of increasing cultural conflict. So w what I like in chapter 19, what happens is uh, Bar Lennon says, uh, just so you know, we're not actually going to do what you said. We're renegotiating, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and he's got him at the point where it, he, he really has no choice. Turns out that uh, the reasonable help Clement uh, Lackland, another name that's kind of interesting, right? Given the context that 
they're never going to come down and colonize right. this he, planet, he lacks, right? He, lacks, he lacks land. Right. They don't, they're, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of suspicious about all the, the names. I don't think, Bar Lennon doesn't sound like an alien name to me. It sounds like a, yeah. uh, you know, a family that married and kept both, <laughs> you know, both names. And uh, what's the Don Drac- Draconis or whatever it is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, another name. It doesn't sound like an alien name. So in the pre-negotiation, before the novel starts, when the actual very first part of the first contact happened, mm-hmm. I think these names were assigned, sort of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even maybe Lackland and Charles and all that sort of thing could have been assigned because it it really shows it doesn't matter. He's not spending all his time making up a, like Tolkien. Tolkien does the same thing, right? In his Lord of the Rings, he's doing the same thing, except instead of uh, finding a different planet with different gravity and seeing the implications of that, he finds he makes up a new language and finds out the implications for that. He says, "How could this language come into existence, and how could we have not known about it?" Right? right. And he sets up this whole mythology that plays out in a much richer tapestry than this simple game that Clement uh, does. So. I think, I think you know, you could enrich in this book a lot if you were adding characterizations, you know, all that stuff. But I don't, I don't think that's the point. I don't think anybody really. It's, it's like um, we don't need it. That's not what this is for. Mm-hmm. I don't know, some uh, something like that. I, I am curious now. I have never read the sequel. Now I'm curious that I would actually like to read the sequel at some point there's a sequel mm-hmm. there's a mm-hmm. sequel it's called starlight it oh. set, came out it, in the 70s yeah it, it set some decades later and basically the humans and the mescalonites uh together explore uh, a different planet together mm-hmm. Interesting. You, got, you, you got don drachmer in it um i'm not sure if martin lenton's in or is a different mescalonite oh yeah yeah bar lennon is in it it, that's go. what you, that's what Wikipedia says. Yeah. So, so yeah. So they basically humans and mescalonites team up to explore a supergiant planet. Do you guys notice uh, one of, one of one of the nice things I, I liked in this book is is all the little touches. Basically, what I'm saying is that is all the every time he plays a game, like I don't think there's any rule that was violated at all. I, I I'm I'm not highly trained in you know gravitational science or anything, but I. As far as I can tell, he didn't break any of the rules. None of the science was violated, even up to today. But one of the things that happened when they're when they're they're coming down a slope into that village uh, for trading purposes, and they're trying to show they're not hostile. Remember that part? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ark, or what? What's the name of their ship that they're dragging over the land? The Bree. It's called? The Bree. The, is it the Bree yeah. that they're dragging over the land? Okay. Yeah. Uh, or tank. They were calling it the tank. Um, anyways, when it hits the slope, it starts steering itself down the most natural part of the slope because the gravity's so high, right? Right. Um, this is actually, that's, uh, and I'm sure that he's thinking this in his mind. At least that's what I was thinking. Is he, oh, he, I see what he's done there. This is, um, how, uh, glaciers work, Right. It's not that, you know, the glacier is always trying to reach the sea. It's that uh, the gravity is always sucking down the weight, which is crushing the earth beneath it. 
and that path of slippage, you know, the the sort of lubrication of the breaking of the rocks mm-hmm. makes the uh, like you could almost you could steer glaciers, right? If you wanted to, <laughs> you just have to set up the right circumstances. In the same way, we can steer rivers, right? But the difference is is rivers are one you know continuous flowing, whereas glaciers it's not necessarily that way but it, it was a it was the movement of glacier a glacier you know down a mountain instead of a ship right so the the fact that friction um is much um different on this world is a very important part of this book <laughs> how can you say have you read anything else where friction was an incredibly important part of a book no, no. I, I mean, even in all the Larry Niven novels, I don't think there was a, uh, I, I mean, maybe in uh, Douglas Adams, there's a, you know, a frictionless spaceship or something, right? Um, but even then, the the game that he's playing there is everything's possible, the infinite improbability drive, right? Yeah. Um, he knows all the same tropes uh, as everybody else in science fiction, and he's just playing it for laughs. Um, and playing it to the max on every every direction, whereas this game is a much uh, more it's like you know the rules of chess. Yes. And once you have the certain chess uh, problem on the page, you can only do certain moves. And if he plays the game well, you will see ah how brilliant that move was. Right. That's a good analogy. Yeah. So you can. I think there's the the fact it, on that interview with uh, all those guys on on first contact. Mm-hmm. Did you notice mm-hmm. all the PhDs that were coming up on screen? I did. I did. I but that's why I thought I was I couldn't understand how he got all those people to sit down and talk to him. I didn't realize that that he had done them in advance. I think that's just so great. Mm-hmm. It, it takes sort of a a planning and thoughtfulness that you don't see in a lot of stuff anymore it's more week to week and moment to moment interviews and not a lot of research whoever uh, the, the people who made that show were genius at what they were doing and it's it's a real shame that it's still not going and because i i think it it would be the boost if if it if it hadn't been an american show rather than canadian show it would um still probably still be on and it would have fostered much more activity in in reading than I yeah I think because it it did that for me yeah it would have and a dedicated comic con I, I mean the thing is is comic con is mostly about media like you know TV and movies now right? right even so like when you go to a world con uh it's mostly readers but there's still a lot of fans of TV shows and there can be crossovers but the the sort of the importance of having ideas at the forefront of this genre is is really important and every episode of that show you know where they do a show on racism or they do a show on uh first contact or intelligence and that sort of thing it's it's really well thought through and the and the the guests they get on have written very interesting books on all of these topics and and you can hear it when they when I love that show so much because when they have a guy on he isn't just talking about his own book he's talking about all the other books that you know you should read the names like a- Asimov comes up right Asimov's dead at the time 
of this show airing, so they don't have interviews with him, I don't think. But uh, Asimov is mentioned in the Whirligig world. Did you? Did I love? Did you see? He said he talks about sitting around talking about his story with Isaac Asimov. Was, yeah. <laughs> imagine being in that room. You know. He said he said uh, that um, he wanted to call it pancake in the sky, but Asimov threatened violence. Right. <laughs> well, Asimov is, was right. The pancake in the sky is yes. Yeah, it'd be right beside Gravy Planet, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and and the fact that they they spent you know an evening a pleasant evening uh, trying to find materials from which the uh, the atmosphere could uh, precipitate and uh, turn to a liquid in a in an orbit this far away from a primary star, you know, like the fact that that is how they spent their evening, that is a much more interest. uh, This is much more interesting kind of, um, uh, I don't know, coffee table talk than, you know, whatever presidential candidate is, is making whatever noises today. Or the Kardashians, you know, indeed. And so, yeah, this is, this stuff is an acquired taste. <laughs> well, that's like that's the great game that you're talking about. I think it is right, it, and and we get to play it a little bit when we read it. Right, <laughs> we, we are anticipating in our own minds the problems that come in. So, I, me, I I used to think, yeah, prime directives makes makes a lot of sense, but um, not all contacts uh, that we hear about, uh, well, not all contacts in history were like that, right? Um, Most are, yeah. Well, there are a lot of horrible ones, right? I just read one the other day uh, about the first contact between the Americans in 1792 and uh, the Japanese. They didn't actually go ashore. Um, a ship, a couple of American ships um, uh, are trying to weather a storm, um, and they come up to a bay off of Japan, and uh, people see it, and they come, you know, send to the local samurai or whatever, come down and say, uh, there's a ship in the harbor and say, we can't let them land. And they, you know, they freak out and they come back to the shore with the, like angry sticks and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then they row, uh, they row a little kid out there to see, you know, to tell sort of pass the message along and they can't communicate. And on board the ship, there's a Chinese, um, a uh, guy who writes a letter to give to the local samurai and to give it to the boy, boy rows it ashore. They pass the, uh, message on and then they come back and say yeah you can't come ashore but we won't attack you as long as you don't uh while the storm's happening or whatever and it wouldn't be admiral perry's first thing wouldn't be uh you know the adventures out there wouldn't be for like another 20 years or something um first contacts need not be uh you know what you see in the uh, I don't know, genocide in Central America or South America, right? You don't, they don't have to be that way. Um, and so it, it makes sense when you have sort of this imperialistic thing uh, happening all over the world in the time of the Cold War in the 1960s, right? When you're getting involved in Vietnam and uh, trying to overturn the governments of Cuba and Central America and South America and Iran and all, all these things going on to say, maybe we should have a more modest foreign policy. Right? <laughs> but but on the other hand, like if if you think of the I used to think of the cult, uh, the history of British Columbia, where I'm from, as being incredibly boring. And it actually isn't incredibly boring. It's just there's not a lot of death. There's almost nobody getting killed. Nobody gets killed in anger because 
the people who come here aren't here to uh, conquer the first ones who come. They're here to trade. So they set up a fort and they put up walls so that people don't steal their stuff. But they're trading and and they aren't, you know, there's a ban on uh, enforcing people to become Christian in order to trade. Or, like, it's it's super peaceful. And then, you know, some governmental change happens in the East and the Hudson's Bay Company is sold to to uh, Canada, uh, and Canada has completely different policy, and then troubles really start, right? That's when people start, you know, getting sent to residential schools and having their culture destroyed, right? Um, having uh, land stolen, and like it need not be terrible. It need not it's- be. But remember, he set a precedent here. Like these people are not all peaceful. Or I mean, like they've got the rock rollers who roll you down if you right. their territory, and the other people throw spears. And and he Berlinen, like he he does say, I I don't want to ever pay tolls again. I want to be I want to be in charge of all the lands. Like he says it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he mm-hmm. really really will change the balance on the planet. Whether that's but he's going to be a benevolent uh, scientific dictator, right? <laughs> like like if 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 Hal Clement was running American foreign policy. I don't see it as being sort of horrible. I would see it as much calmer and boring. Yeah. Right? Well, it's more it'd technocrat. Be like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you, if you're not a superpower trying to flex its muscles all the time, everywhere, you know, you don't say, Oh, that those, uh, damn Venezuelans are always uh, trying to conquer the world. They're just trying to run their own country and they got their own stuff going on. So if, if you only think like, I think of Star Trek as a as a medicine for for what's wrong in the states, right? Is that is the imperialism gone crazy? Um, that, that it can't even be acknowledged as imperialism, and it, it makes sense. But I used to think you know that made sense, but now I think you know if if we're past that, if we are past that, um, you don't have to. I mean, it's kind of worse not to share this. Uh, knowledge with those people, don't you think? No, I do. Uh, but hopefully, they would share it with with the land, the whole, it, the whole. It all will come out in the end. It always does, right? Planet. Yeah, up, yeah. Up, uplift the entire higher world, not just uh, one piece. This kind of reminds me. Now you got me. You were talking about Jerry Parnell mm. in his um, Empire of Man series. Um, basically, the premise is humanity spread out, formed an empire. It collapsed, and then from one of the one of the planets, it started spreading out again. And they're, they're coming across all these human planets at different technological levels. And it's uh, oh yeah, it's King David's spaceship. I had to think of the planet. So in King David's spaceship, the space empire comes across this planet. They're roughly just before early, like early 1900s technology, and they realize that this star empire is going to overwhelm them. So they go on a crash mission to try to basically build spaceships. And to do that, they wind up going on a trading planet to an even more primitive human planet where technology has gone all the way back to the middle ages. So you get, and they start mucking around with the culture and the countries there, just as they're being mucked around by the star empire. So this is like one's mucking around the other and they're mocking. So it's easy chain down of, uh, cultural change and messing with local planets in a in a in a chain of uh from 
empire to planet to primitive planet. Mm. Did you, have you read uh, Needle? That's the other one that they mention him being famous for, and I've heard of it I've, as well. I've not read Needle. Um, sounds sounds interesting. Um, it's uh, postulates a alien life form, non-hostile, which can live inside the human body. Oh, oh yeah, that's one of his early, early ones. Um, yeah, it's his first novel, I think. Uh, yep, the hunter, an alien life form. When not inside another being resembling a four-pound green jellyfish with the ability to live in symbiosis with and within another creature is in hot pursuit of another of his kind. Both crashed their ships into the Earth and both survived the crashes. Ah, interesting. So ba- basically, basically the, the two aliens wind up getting into humans and basically uh, one's chasing the other, basically. Through the human? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That kind that kind of makes me think of uh, I I could see I could see now especially how Niven was really influenced by Hal Clement. You have you have his world Jinx, which is a very <laughs> oblong planet, and now this kind of reminds me of uh, with the symbiosis. With that, it reminds me of uh, World of Batabs, where you have that alien basically mind imprint upon the human, so the human has kind of like the alien's mind riding in with him. Yeah, there's a there, there was another. I mean, Niven is, uh, I think he's not well regarded because of the sexism, racism thing. But he's he's a brilliant mind for this game. You know, this game of hard SF. You mentioned the Ring World before, yeah. I did, yeah. And I'm trying to remember the name. There's a one of his first short stories, um, Neutron Star. That's it. Yep. Um, you know that one. It's 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 basically it's a game of uh, thinking about gravity, right? There's a spaceship. It's passed through uh, a solar system. Um, the shell, the shell of the spaceship is indestructible, right? It's got this material that's indestructible, which is fun, and he uses it in his other books. Yep, general products hold number one, right? And uh, the crew's dead. What happened to the crew, right? And the uh, I think Beowulf Schaefer is the the character yep. who comes and investigates, and he leads the, leads the reader through this and then at the end of the story we we are we, we understand oh it was the tides of the this world the fact that um at one point uh one position a few feet away from another position the uh the differential gravity would just pull anybody inside that spaceship apart yep. <laughs> um just the fact that you know if you've got a a, a, a as much gravity as a neutron star has and you pass close enough to it um you will be torn apart even just like standing next to it because the difference between one position and another position is not even the position of you sort of falling towards it it's like uh, being pulled at different rates yeah um neil degrasse tyson later called that spaghettiification Hmm. Uh, right (laughs) but he used to talk about black holes with the same principle right or, um, uh, Misa, you, you should, uh, I should send you a link to this. It's a really, uh, great, uh, story and it was adapted into an excellent, um, episode of the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. There's a story called Inconstant Moon. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is a, it's a, I love, I love the fact that <laughs> Larry Nevin writes a really nice love story. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, everybody thinks how sexist he is. It's a really nice love story. This guy, 
he he's, he's he's feeling romantic. He looks out at the moon and he says, "Oh, that's not good." <laughs> he sees the moon is too bright. Oh, and then, and then he figures out um, that he better go get a girlfriend or his girlfriend and uh, spend the best night of uh, uh, his life together with her. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe telling her or not telling her whether she is going to die uh, by morning. Um, and he say, that's awesome, right? The fact that you can look up in the moon and say, uh-oh, we're all going to die. Not because of what's happening on the moon, but because of how bright the moon is. Reflected light, yep. The reflected light of a? Of, 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 of a star that's either going over or going, I believe <laughs> the star is flaring. It's high right. flaring, yeah. Well, no, but it turns out it's flaring. He thought it was going nova or something to that effect, right? Yeah. Um, so he thought the Earth was going to be completely destroyed. But the end of the story, oh, the good news is it's o- it's only in the apocalypse. <laughs> it's not the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. It's like I believe the line is I and I, I wondered if our children were going to colonize Europe, Africa, and Asia. It's mm-hmm. like, because yeah, the rest of the because the side of the Earth that's yeah, the on side the, of the Earth had been fried. Fried, right? yeah. Okay, well, that's no uh, last to the moon for you, Mary. Love story. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, our, our children will repopulate the planet here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's almost like an Adam and Eve sort of thing, yeah. It is, yeah. And, I, and, and I, that reminds me of another Niven story, which is not hard SF. That reminds me of what can you say about chocolate-covered manhole covers where you wind up with a bunch of people who get transported by aliens to another planet to basically become Adam and Eve's. <laughs> yeah there's yeah. some there's one uh it's sort of uh i think it was pu- i think it was published in a in a uh a convention sort of brochure you know like a world con brochure or something and it's i think it's called man of steel woman of kleenex oh yes i've read that yeah it's, it's like in one of his collections oh god that's uh, that story that story slash essay is so funny because it all makes he basically he says, what if Superman is actually exactly what we think he is? Yeah. Right? If you follow the rules of Superman through, um, what's uh, what's Superman's girlfriend named? Lois Lane? Lois Lane. She's in trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's got heat vision. What happens when they have sex? <laughs> oh, not even that. Um, this might get your explicit take. What happens, what happens when he um, has his sexual release? If, 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 yeah, so basically... Yeah, he's Superman, so the release is going to be super strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah you can imagine this, myself. And it's scary. Yeah, and, and, and he goes through and says, "Okay, well, maybe Superman can can just have uh, ha- have her uh, impregnated, uh, you know, with uh, an artificial insemination." He points out as the baby, as the uter- as the fetus is developing, the fetus is going to start using its superpowers on the mother. That could be bad. Is this is this Larry Niven? Yes, this is yeah. Larry Niven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he he just goes through remor- remorselessly the implications of Superman <laughs> trying to have a sex life, and it's bad. He even mentions, well, maybe he can have sex with Supergirl, but that's his cousin, so that's no that's no good. Work. You know, because yeah, that doesn't work. But it, it would solve the biological problems, but yeah, that's just yeah. Well, they, they they have to repopulate uh, Krypton or something, right? Right, because Krypton's gone. Right. All that's left is Superman right. and refugees. Yeah, and a few refugees. Superdog and all the other ones that appear in oh, later issues of uh, yeah. the seventies or sixties. Um, I think we're going off topic, but I think we, we should have. leave this uh, hard SF 
if not now, sometime in the future. I agree. It would be a mission of gravity for us to do so. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.